Well, grace and peace be with you from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm waiting for my tablet to load at this point, so we'll see how this goes. But, uh, you know, every, every now and again on, on non-communion Sundays, I try to take the opportunity to not just preach a sermon on a text, but actually kind of dig into the text and kind of look at what it's all about and what's really going on here. And so I wanted to do that today with our passage that we have in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. One of those passages that gets a lot of times abused. Um, oh, apparently I have it on a timer. But, uh, but uh, one of those texts that we... we tend to abuse. And part of the reason that we abuse it is because we don't always take time to really look at context. Now, if you've been in my high school Bible class, and I know there's a few of you here that have been, you'll know that I, I tend to say over and over and over again, context, context, context. My one professor at seminary used to always tell us that if grammar is king, then context is queen. The idea being that if you fail to look at the context of a passage, you're going to end up with the wrong understanding of a passage. In today's case, you have to actually go back all the way two chapters almost. You see, because Jesus does this thing. He, he sees all this crowd of people, and so he has them sit down, and he begins to proclaim God's word to them. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it begins on chapter 5. And it begins in a very common way that we're, we're used to, right? He says, blessed are those that are meek. Blessed are those, and so on and so forth. And it's all the blesseds. And we love it. It's one of our favorite passages. We love it. But a lot of times what we don't do is we don't actually put the, the rest of it with it. Because you see, Jesus says, blessed, blessed, blessed. And then all of a sudden, you get past verse 12 and on to verse 13. And all of a sudden, you're get, you get hit was some of the hardest law in all of Scripture. Some of the hardest law in all of Scripture. If your eye causes you to sin, rip it out. Tear out your eye. Your arm causes you to sin, or your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? It's better for you to go blind into heaven than to go with two eyes into hell. So you got some really harsh law that comes down to it. But the verse that we're going to deal with in question is actually the last two blesseds. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Went backwards. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I kind of did that a little backwards. I didn't mean to. I put the slides in backwards, so that's on me. That's my fault. I'll take blame for it. Um, but here's the point of all this, and uh, this is why I'm do this. What Jesus is doing is a very Hebrew thing. Unfortunately, it's not a very Western American thing. And because of that, it can be very confusing. Why have all these blesseds and then turn around and smack people with the law? Why? Well, the short answer is because back in the ancient days, they tended to write in a spiral of sorts. Oh, that doesn't come across very good, does it? Let's try that one. There we go. Much better. They tended to write in a spiral. 
And because they wrote in a spiral, it, it, it's a little hard to read. Here's what I mean by this. Let's say you're taking all the blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And then all of a sudden you get hit in the head with the law. That hit in the head with the law should hopefully make you realize that you're not quite up to snuff. And whenever you're realizing that you're not quite up to snuff, that forces you to go back and read the blessings again. Right? How do you know you're meek? Well, when you get hit in the head with law a few times, all of a sudden you begin to realize, oh wait, maybe I'm not as great as I thought I was. When you start to realize you're maybe not as great as you thought you were, we call that humility. We call that meekness. And now all of a sudden you can go back and you can begin to read those blesseds again. And you can say, oh, blessed are the meek. Got it. God's law creates the blesseds. But you've got to go back around and read it. This is the way the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of designed to be read. And it goes on for chapters. It goes all the way into it goes all the way to chapter 7. So here we are in chapter 6, and we see all these blessings, right? Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are the reviled. Blessed are all those that hate you because of me. And then all of a sudden we get to this, this passage in 19. Do not lay, for yourself, lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You're going to be persecuted for me, and blessed are you if you're persecuted for me. Don't lay up your treasures here. And then, it's after that, that we begin to understand where our passage is coming from. This is the context. This is the context for our entire passage for today, which starts by saying you cannot serve two masters. Where is your treasure where is your heart? Because where your heart is, that is going to be your guiding principle. You cannot serve two masters. One master, though, might lead to persecution. It might lead to you being reviled because of the name of Jesus. Now, here in just a little bit when we're going to get to the actual text for today... I want you guys to keep that in mind. And the reason that's important to keep in mind is because a lot of times when we read this, this text, it says, don't be anxious, don't, be, you know, don't worry. A lot of times we think that means that God is telling us that we're never going to have strife again. We're never going to have trouble. We're never going to suffer. But realize that this text is done in the, in the context of Jesus quite literally telling the disciples, you're going to have persecution. You're going to have strife. And on top of that, he says, don't worry. All right. For our exegetical part, I'm going to say amen. And then we're going to come back later. Well, grace and peace be with you from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Janet was a nice young lady. Some people argue that she got married a little young, but 20 years old isn't that young. I mean, yeah, she couldn't even drink yet, but she wasn't that young, and her marriage had been good. 
Her and her husband got along really well. They attended church together. Admittedly, sometimes he did not go to church, but she went every week like clockwork. She lived in a nice community, had a nice house, had a decent car. She was living the American dream, and she loved her church home. The pastor there would give sermons with passion. He would add emphasis. The church was big, but not too big. It wasn't what you would call a mega church by any means, but yet they had a good children's ministry. They weren't hurting for money, that's for sure. They were doing well. They were doing good for themselves. But if there's one thing that is true about Janet, it's that in reality she was struggling. She was struggling with something that she didn't want to tell anybody about. Her and her husband had gone over the books over and over and over again, and they were struggling financially. She was up to her eyeballs in debt. She didn't want to admit it. Because, you see, if she admitted it, she felt like she was admitting that she didn't have enough faith. Because doesn't God tell them not to worry, that he will provide? And here she had all these things, and, and she wanted to believe that she, she had enough faith. She, she gave to church. She came to church faithfully. She did all the things that she was supposed to do. But yet they were really struggling to make ends meet. They were really, really struggling. You see, Janet had a problem. She looked at texts like the one that stands before us today, the gospel lesson, but also other texts as well. And she read them in a particular way. And who knows, maybe the pastor at her church even presented it this way. And the way that it was presented led to kind of this false belief. But it's actually a common belief. It's one that, that, especially as Americans, if we're really honest, we kind of do all the time. Now, we can't cover all the, the, the problems that she had when she was reading through a text like this, but we can handle at least one main one. And that was that she was taking certain things, certain things that were, were well, they were luxury items. But mentally, she had kind of made them and transferred them into needs. And if we're really true to ourselves... As Americans, we kind of do this all the time. I mean, I, I love talking to some of the youth that are gathered with us today because guess what, guys? 20, 30 years ago, nobody had a cell phone. Nobody. In fact, I remember when I was about 9 or 10 years old, so about 30 years ago, watching a movie and seeing a guy have a car phone and thinking that that person must be independently wealthy. They had a car phone. And yet, how many of us today would look at our phones as if they were a necessity? Something that we absolutely had to have. Or here's another one. 30, 40 years ago, AC was not everywhere. It was not in every building. It was not in every church. It was not everywhere. I remember, even when it got up to 104 degrees in Missouri, crouching down in the basement just trying to cool off a little bit because there was no air conditioning. It was not considered a necessity. How many of us would consider it a necessity now? How many of us would say, no, there's no way I'm ever living again without air conditioning? This is the problem that Janet had. 
She had taken these things that were really luxury items and mentally she had done this trick and she had made it into necessities and then she had kind of transposed that onto this passage to say that God tells us that he's going to give us all of these things. And that's not what the text is about. That's not what Jesus is saying. As he causes us to look at the birds of the sky, of the plants, of the field, he is not saying he's going to give us every luxury item we could ever imagine. That's not what he's saying. And Roger knew that. See, Roger is somebody else. He lives in a different town, different state. In a lot of ways, Roger lived in a completely different world because Roger knew suffering. If there is one thing that Roger knew in his life, it was suffering. Oh, he understood it. He understood not being able to pay his bills. He understood living on the streets. He understood pain. And because of that, Roger had abandoned the faith. You see, because Roger, he couldn't buy into such a passage. When he would read into a passage like this, when he would look at a passage like this, he felt like it was God telling him that if he had enough faith, he would never suffer again. But Roger knew suffering. And he knew that faith didn't guarantee a no-suffering life. What about all those Christians in the Middle East? Some of them even round up and killed. What about them? Maybe they should have worried more. So says Roger. Roger thinks that Maybe Christians ought to start worrying a little bit more instead of worrying a little less. But you see, the problem is, is that Roger's reading it wrong too. You see, when Jesus is talking to those disciples, those, those people that are gathering around him, do you think those people that are gathered there really believed that no birds ever died? That no bird ever starved to death? That no bird ever had harm come to it? No. They understood what Jesus was saying as he's talking about the birds of the sky. That sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes persecution happens. And in fact, if Jesus is actually arguing that there is no persecution that's going to happen if you have enough faith, it doesn't really make sense with that Matthew 5 passage that I just read. The one that started it all. That basically says, hey, if you're a Christian, if you hold on to the very name of Christ, guess what? You're going to have persecution. People are going to revile you because of my name. No, that's not what this passage is about either. It's not talking about how if we just have enough faith, we'll never suffer again. Or that we'll get all the luxury items that we've ever dreamed of. And then there's Sebastian. Sebastian was, well, Sebastian was the oldest person he knew named Sebastian. At 89 years old, he had never met another Sebastian that was his age. But Sebastian had le lived a good life. He loved his life. When he reflected back upon his life and his years, he realized that he had had a lot of ups and a lot of downs. He was still enjoying life, but admittedly, his Legs had, stopped giving, had started to give out on him. He'd had some health issues. After talking with his children, he had decided to finally enter into a nursing home. Not a good one either. Not the, not the nursing home that, that most people would want to go to. But Sebastian was content. 
he was content. See, he had never had the most money in the world. He had never been independently wealthy. He had never had the best of things. And admittedly, Sebastian also did not have a life that was completely free from anxiety or worry. Anything but. He had had plenty of moments and times in his life where he had been filled with worry. He had been filled with anxiety. But the more he began to reflect back on his life, the more he began to realize that really you can't serve two masters. You see, whenever he focused his attention upon Jesus and upon the great gifts that God gives to him, he began to realize that life wasn't about all of the stuff and all of the things. He began to realize, like even in those moments where he has a lot of anxiety, a lot of suffering, and a lot of worry, he can go to the Lord in prayer. Now, it doesn't mean that all of his worry and anxiety goes away. But he found out that he could actually unload some of that onto his Savior, onto his God. And that he also realized that if worse came to worst, if the absolute worst happened to him, he was still in the hands of his God. Jesus had still died for him. And he still had that hope, that peace, that faith in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Nothing was going to take that away. Nothing could take it away. And so you see, he found out that worrying had never really helped him. The more anxiety he had, the more worry he had, it didn't mean that the better things got. A lot of times, the worry and anxiety simply added on top of it, made things worse in a sense. And so it is, as he read this passage, this passage gave him some comfort. You can't have two masters. No. But if you fix your eyes upon Jesus... If you fix your eyes upon God, no matter what the world throws at you, you realize that God is in control, that God is taking care of things, and that you can go to Him in prayer, and you can throw some things onto your Lord. doesn't mean your life is going to be worry-free, but God does provide. And so we sing His praises in the midst of everything in our lives, whether it's the good or the bad, we still have faith in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of Christ, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. At this time, let us now stand as we confess our Christian faith.